0: Uh, good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of UFO Undercover. Like Natasha said, I'm Joe Montaldo. I hope everybody's enjoying their evening, their morning, their afternoon, wherever they're on our beautiful blue planet. um... Tonight we're going to have Charles Hall on with us, but just for a second, guys, um, for any of my friends in East Texas, uh, any f- information you have on the Stephenville sightings, I would really like to um, uh, just email it to me at icarcox.net. Also, for my friends out in San Diego. I've only seen a little small video clip of that. I haven't heard anything else about it. Um, so, anybody's got any information, please send that to iCarCox.net. Or you can go to the iCar1 website or the UFO Undercover or Paranormal website and drop it into any of the email slots. We are really easy to find. Trust me on this. <laughs> uh, we don't make it hard for y'all to get in touch with us. So, please, if you've got any information on any of those sightings, uh, send them over to me. Also, also, my friends out in East Texas and Central Texas. Um, you know, around the Austin area, all the way back to Louisiana, uh, Arkansas, Barters. Um, I know there's been a lot of sightings in those areas in the last two years, and uh, anybody with any information, just send them. We're just trying to triangulate something uh, around two military facilities out there. We're just trying to get an idea about something. So if you have any information, just write me at icardcox.net. I would appreciate it, guys. Um, anyway, tonight, ladies and
1: gentlemen, Charles Hall is with us. Charles, how have you been? Well, I, um, I've been fine, and I wanted to thank you for having me on your radio show. I'll oh, well, always be on nice your show. You. I always enjoy being on your show, and yeah. thank you. Uh, yeah, well, you're always a great guest. Uh, you know, uh,
0: you what I call one of the easy guests. <laughs> oh, <thank> you, <laughs> well, don't fine. say. I mean, I, I just mean. <laughs> uh, well, some of the guests, it's like you'll you'll ask them, well, could you please tell me about one of your experiences? And they'll say, well, I have seen an alien. And I'm like, okay, but that's <laughs> all they're gonna say. And you're like, well, what? Wait. <laughs> You know, you're sitting there going, yeah, and why did you want to go on the radio again? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Oh, how, how's the wife? I meant to tell him that it's to my uh, to tell her hello and all. I hadn't seen her since um, Laughlin, I believe. Oh, yeah. I think Laughlin was the last place I had seen her. But <coughs> I I'd just tell her hi, and I you know, hope she's doing well and all. And
1: oh, yeah. I, sure. I, I
0: know. Well, I know how the other other half keeps me organized, so I'm sure she helps
1: keep you organized. They <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. are <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I couldn't do this without the help of my wife. You know, she, it, you, you see, she was the reason that I originally published my four books, and um, <laughs> she's, you know, it, it's, it's, um, I've depended on her for a great deal of things, for a great many things.
0: Oh, I know. I, you know, when I, when I met her a couple of times, I was like, you know, she she just comes off as a really uh, big part of what's going on in this, and helping mm-hmm. you with it, and, all. and That's a good thing, you know. Because um, without mine, I'd be in deep trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's two of us. And uh, I would be because I do, nowadays, We, you know, Linda handles all guests, acquisitions, all of that stuff. And um, uh-huh. you know, she just says, okay, this is going to be on a show. And unless it's something special I want or if I, or something new, like, you know, a new, a new book coming out. If we know stuff like that. Or she knows most of it before I do, to be honest with you. But um, she gets all of that stuff taken. Man, that is such a big burden <laughs> <laughs> on me. It is. I'm just grateful she does it for me. Uh-huh. But but anyway, so so what possessed you to write the fourth book?
1: Um, well, as you know, when I was out in the desert with um, at Indian Springs, mm-hmm. uh, over the course of two years, the, the, those were very emotional times, mm-hmm. and there were, you know, um, what I'm trying to do in all of the books is to capture the emotions that I felt and convey them to the reader. Originally, I was just trying to write my autobi my autobiography and. Passed it on to my children and grandchildren, and there were there were just a substantial number of um, experiences, and there still are, that didn't fit that I didn't have um, written up and prepared for the first three books, and so uh, I, you know I collected them in the fourth book. Now the fourth book also has um, answers to frequently asked questions because the response to the first three books has been tremendous, and also. To, um, credible updates since then. Many of my fans have uh, come to me with um, credible stories. And in the fourth book, uh, I didn't, uh, um, I did not disguise the place names. In the fourth book, uh, you know, I call you, you know, I I'd properly identify Indian Springs and Las Vegas, Nevada, Nellis, and so on. And in the fourth book, although I still, you know, had to conceal the names of the men who served with me. I I use my real name and, um, you know, establish that all of these are actually my true experiences and that they happened to me back in the 60s. Now, the fourth book is named Millennial Hospitality for After Hours, and, um, you know, you can see it on my website, millennialhospitality.com, spelled the way it sounds, and um, it's also, it can be purchased from, any bookstore in the world, or from Amazon.com, or from my website, it can also be purchased by phoning author house directly, which is their number. In, for those with a pen, is one eight eight here in here in the U.S. is one eight 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 two eight zero seven seven one five. But of course, um, they're all you know. The books are available since Amazon.com is a worldwide thing. They're available, you know, in Australia and in the United Kingdom and everywhere. Now, uh, I also have a book signing scheduled on the East Coast for April 18th. Um, I'll be at Borders Express in in uh, Mays Landing, New Jersey. Borders Express is uh, its address is on the Black Horse on the Black Horse Pike at Mays Landing. I'll be there from 5 to 8 p.m. for any of my fans in the area that you know, that wish this in the New York area or the New Jersey area or you know, or the Philadelphia area or any of those places. May's Landing, you know, the, you know, I invite them certainly to stop by and talk with me if they wish. May's Landing is just a few miles n- north of Atlantic City and uh, that was April 18th from 5 to 8, Borders Express. Uh, and, um, but, but the book is, the Book 4 has been very well received and um, you can see previous
0: of it on my website. Well, guys, I encourage you to go check out his website. Um, I know the first three were good books. So I know everybody enjoyed them quite well. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it, well for me. It's kind of strange because well, sorry about that. I Lost something there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's kind of strange for me because you know when you when you talk about your your experiences, you know you're you're very rooted in you're 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 very orientated about it. You, you have it all focused. Which is kind of nice, to be honest with you, Charles. Because a lot of people I talk to, it's, it's very scattered, and it's it's. Of mm-hmm. course, you've had some time to think about it too. Let's, you know, let's,
1: mm-hmm. so the
0: audience understands. Yeah. I mean, it's not like he just came out the next day after the experience and wrote the book. I mean, there was some time between it actually happened and the time the books came out. But
1: that's but,
0: correct. But you know, at least you did take your time to organize your thoughts. I'm looking forward to reading this one. Um, oh, by the way, we have a good following in New York. So, guys, y'all heard where he's going to be. Get out there, come by, pester him. You know, it's always good when you buy a book to get it autographed. I get all my books autographed, trust me. <laughs> Even if i got to go send them to the ufologist, I'm getting them autographed. <laughs> uh, but, you know, cause I, I actually prefer it that way.
1: Mm-hmm. I also, as you know, I have a master's degree in nuclear physics, mm-hmm. and I, I have also copyrighted several scientific papers on what I call Hall photon theory during the time that I was out there with the aliens and I, I got to observe their deep spacecraft and their scout craft many times and at close range and I believe I, I, believe I understand where the doorway to more physics is, to more physics and science. Uh, Hall photon theory, uh, uh, um, it, there's in the appendix of book three, and also in the appendix of the new book, four, I included more scientific papers on Hall photon theory. Everything in all four of my books is totally real and happened to me, and that includes the physics the, the, that I have in there. In Hall, See, I believe, as I describe in my copyrighted papers on Hall photon theory, I believe that there are more force fields in nature than the Four that Einstein and existing physics recognize, and I explain the I explain the scientific reasoning in the uh, in the, the appendix of Book Four, and also in, a, in Book Three. Now, the, in when Book Three went to the printers, the printers had a slight problem with the fonts. Um, uh, um, and so some of the mathematical equations, like the Mathematical, like the mathematical term for partial differential and stuff, didn't kind of got butchered by the fonts, and so some of my more scientific readers wondered, you know, whether not, you know, what was vectors and so on. And I tried to make, in Book 4, I made that very clear, you know, I was more, I, I was able to do a better job with the plot. Well, that's one of the nice
0: things about people uh-huh. that are interested in ufology, they do tend, a lot of them, to have a deep-seated uh-huh. interest in science, physics, uh-huh. and space exploration. You see,
1: see, uh, you see, you as I describe in Book 4, the night that I was out, at, w- one night when I was out at Range 3, and I was talking to the tall white alien lady whose CIA name was the teacher, and... The tall white alien man, whose CIA name was Range Four Harry, and 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 this was in 1967, late 67, after we, after I'd gotten over my fear and stuff, and we'd gotten to where we were friends or you know, conversational, and I had and I had suggested that I'd asked how it was that they had come here, because I sugge- you know because at the time I still thought Einstein was correct with relativity. You know, when with Einstein's statement, um, that Einstein, as you know, didn't believe that a spacecraft could travel faster than the speed of light. And I pointed out the math that in order for them to have come here, their spacecraft would have to do something like 40 or 50 times the speed of light. And you know, and I said, "Gee, Einstein says it wasn't possible." As I describe in book four, they were rolling on the ground. laughing. No, I can imagine. You know. And then finally, the te- when they got control of themselves, my teacher got up and she was still giggling. She, she said to me, she said, well, as you can see, we're here now. And, or, and that was her way of saying, boy, if you think I'd say was right, boy, is that fun. Then she was going around to the other tall white people who were there with her, some of whom were new arrivals, and she was saying, see, I told you talking to Charlie would be fun, you know. <laughs> you know? And they were, you know, like if for them it was a party. and and, um, and but. As I describe in my books, they never came to tell me anything. They came for their own purposes, yeah. and I had the uh, and and what I figured out, what I you know, I had to do it totally myself by putting two and two together and 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 you know, what, using what I personally observed and then you know doing the reasoning in between and stuff. And so, in book four, I have a chapter describing what one in the in the appendix. I have a chapter describing the afternoon that I was sitting in the front doorstep of my Range 3 weather shack, watching the scout craft come from the hangar at the north end of Indian Springs Valley down to where I was. It wasn't coming straight at me, it was coming somewhat diagonal across the valley, because they were going to sit down behind the Range 3 lounge building. And and this was in late 1967, when I was no longer afraid, and I had was able to just sit quietly and, and look at things and see them as they really were. And, and, and you could see and you could clearly see that that scout craft was using at least, oh, I estimate three or four additional force fields that Einstein and current physics are unaware of. For example, the scout craft was perfectly capable, as I personally observed on many occasions, of rising up out of the sagebrush, Totally powering up, and when it did it, it took on kind of a fuzzy appearance, and then traveling a distance of like seven or eight miles a- at an average speed of eight, thousand miles an hour, and just stopping on a dime, powering down and sitting back down on the, on the desert and And the people on board were just sitting there in their chair, like uh, like we are now. And in order, if you were to try to do that with the rocket sled, the forces of acceleration would be so great that you would liquefy steel. Yeah. Uh, and and it showed that once that scout craft powered up and fuzzed over, that, that there had to be a force field there, which was protecting the inhabitants from the forces of acceleration. And, and I note that in these, these current wave of sightings that are said to... You know, like the ones in Texas and so on. I noticed that uh, 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 you know some of the, the people sometimes refer to the fuzzy appearance of the craft when they're moving quickly, and see see you know from, from by comparison the Air Force the Air Force jets like the triangular airplanes that the U.S. Air Force has that I saw one out in White Sands National Monument. Some years ago, or the or the space planes that the Air Force has, and so on, all of those when you see them, even you know at a distance, have a the sharp outline of an airplane, you know, the solid metal object, and that's because they're not surrounded by that force field. You see, there, you know, if you see like a airliner, like a like a 757, say, coming in for a landing an airplane, at an airport, even if it's some distance away. The edge of the airplane has the usual sharp, you know. you can see there's a sharp yeah, edge there. doesn't. The, 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 line fuzzy, the you know. it. But you know, and that's because there isn't a force field around an ordinary airplane. You, you know. On the other hand, when you see a, when you see a, you know, for the people who are looking at um, UFOs, I used to have a saying that, I, or a rule of thumb that I used myself. It was that you couldn't tell which craft were ours and which craft was, were alien craft based only on the shape. You had the our craft all made sounds, but the alien craft did it in perfect silence. And our craft, all our airplanes, always had a sharply defined edge, whereas the alien craft, once they were maneuvering, they were powered up and maneuvering always had that fuzzy outline, you see. The, the, the scout craft, for example, looked like a white fuzzy ellipsoid when it was totally powered up because that force field interacted with light as well as interacting with inertia. And see, how photon theory theorizes that within each photon of light, there's a third force field. There's a, you know, existing physics says there's an electric field and a magnetic field, and, 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 but see, Hall's photon theory says there's another field in there. And once you realize there's another field in there, then Einstein's special theory of relativity, you know, goes to pieces. I'm not questioning some of Einstein's work, such as E equals mc squared or, or you know, and I'm not questioning his basic assertion that space has resistance to motion. The, when Einstein started doing things like the twins paradox and pretending that time slowed down when you were accelerating and so on, then he was simply wrong. Uh, when when the uh, when the uh, 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 teacher and Range Four Harry, as I describe in the book, when they went to another when they went off on a business trip, they were gone for two and a half months. I'm certain that they were going, went to some place outside of our, uh, of our solar system to some other star. Well, for them, time didn't slow down. It, you know, time didn't... When they got back, they were two and a half months older. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, uh. yeah. Likewise, the other aliens that I personally saw that I described in my book three and book four, the ones I call the Norwegians with 24 teeth, whom I believe come here from a planet that orbits either Bernard's a star, which is the fourth closest star, or the next star out, which has a funny name. It's like NA-1229 or something. I don't have the name memorized.
0: Yeah, I have a list somewhere of the yeah, ten it, closest star.
1: It's like the fifth closest star. They come from one of the... And Bernard's star is like at five and a half light years, and the next star out is like at six and a half. Well, see, they, see he claim, uh, the, 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 one, the Norwegians of 2014, the ones that I personally talked to, he claimed that it took him 20 years, him and his parents, that they were on board the spacecraft for 20 years. And I note that, those, that to see those stars, what you do is you go to the, in order, if you want to find those stars, the simplest way, would be to go to the last island in the Aleutian chain, the one where the U.S. government says it's building a big radar (laughs) set, or to some place around Prague, Czechoslovakia, and look straight up. Okay? (laughs) And we wonder why the government cares so much about those two places. It must be their latitude. They're like on opposite sides of the Earth. And, and, um, and, and, And when you look straight up, you're looking down an island chain towards Bernard star, the fourth, then the fifth, then the sixth-closest stars, there in that direction. He claimed that they got on board the spacecraft, and it took them 20 years. It took, he, he, their technology was not as advanced as the technology of the 12 flights. He claimed that it took them 20 years to get here from there, that they accelerated for 10 years, and then they turned the spacecraft around and decelerated for 10 years. And if you're coming from like Bernard's star, five and a half light years away, or the next one out, if you accelerate at nine times the force of gravity for ten years, you'll reach something light, something like sixty percent the speed of light, and then you'll, when, then you'll, you you know, and then if you turn around and decelerate at nine Gs, you'll slow back down to Earth, you know, to to a landing speed for Earth. And that will that will take that will make the travel time roughly 20 years. But nine Gs is too strong for a human to endure. You know, old men like myself would be killed by, say, three Gs. You know, very few people. You know, no human could take nine Gs for Not 20 a years. His physical body was virtually identical to ours, except for the number of teeth, and he had slightly webbed teeth. But you, you know, but other than that, he looked perfectly like us. And he looked so much like us that I would have never figured out that he had come here from another planet if my dentist hadn't pointed him out to me. My dentist had—he was one of the, he was a patient of my dentist. My dentist had X-rayed his teeth, and my dentist pointed out that based on the that fact that he had only 24 teeth and was genetically coded for only 24, and, and that he could regrow any tooth that was pulled, because you know, the roots in his teeth were only like half as long as mine, as I described in Book 3, that he, had to, that he couldn't possibly be human because of the medical con- considerations that go with having three sets of teeth and stuff. But on the other hand, his body was the same as ours. He couldn't take 9Gs any more than you and I could. But see, in order for the craft to accelerate the 9Gs, it means that they had to have stumbled across at least one of those other force fields, the one that that controls, um, that, that interacts with inertia and limits inertia on board. Because when you talk to them about what life was like on the spacecraft, he said, well, you know, it was just that the force of gravity on the spacecraft was the same as it is here on Earth. Their home planet, he said, was virtually the same size as the Earth, but that star that they orbit is a red dwarf. It's only like 10% the size of the sun. So their home planet is like ice, half ice solar. So their, their climate at, the, at their equator is the same as our climate in southern Norway, and that's why they like the, that stretch on our planet the southern Norway kind of climate or the southern Canada kind of climate. He had the tall whites like it hotter than us, but he felt comfortable when it was like ten degrees cooler than what I did. And and see when I talked with him, it was obvious that his people had stumbled across at least one of those other force fields, the one that took you know, that that interacted with the forces of inertia to allow the craft to accelerate at 9 Gs for 10 years, you see? And and see, so one of my, you know, points to ponder, I guess, is that when people see UFOs, like the people in Texas and so on, if they would um, study them more, I think you'd see those force fields in action.
0: And, you know, I've heard many many different physicists, and quite a few of them theorize if you want to go faster than be the light, and you'll have to have fields to cancel out several different effects. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I always found that fascinating. Matter of fact, uh, we've got Dr. Paul Lovallite-Lovetta coming on in a couple of weeks, and uh, it's one of the things I wanted to talk to him about uh, is things like that. Also, I want to talk to him about the cosmic wave theory, because mm-hmm. that kind of fascinates me ever since they uh, found some evidence to back it up. I'm kind of like, oh, wait, let's see what this is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but those things always, that, that kind of science is just one of my favorite things, because yeah, you know, it, it, it helps to make people understand because one of the first things you hear of somebody is, oh, well, you can't travel faster than the speed of light. There's no way they can get here. Um, well, besides light speed, there's probably three or four other ways they can get here without traveling faster than the speed of light. Um, and then, of course, there's light speed. And then, like I've said on many occasions, I said, you know, guys, I said, if you live to be, if your race can live to be two or 300,000 years, I said, at half light speed, you can explore the entire galaxy in 200,000 years. So if you're a race that's been around for several billion years, not only have you explored it, but you've probably settled it in many different areas. <laughs> you know, so you know, they don't understand that you don't have to travel fast the speed of light, but these days I've noticed that there's a lot more science uh, lending to the fact that we might be able to. Uh, I mean, just mm-hmm. recently when they found that light going around Jupiter actually can slow, and ex- it can actually slow slower than the speed of light and go faster than the speed of light. Mm-hmm. And you know, mm-hmm. things like that gives them hope for the future. Um, mm-hmm. So I that's why it always fascinates me. Um, mm-hmm. And drive systems, and I do hear a lot of contactees and stuff that talk about different drive systems. See, I like when the aliens grab somebody that has, you know, some scientific background to them. <laughs> Well, it's well, true because you know, well, some people just, you know, they'll go in and they'll say, "Well, I have seen this big blue cylinder with these things coming out of it, mm-hmm. and it's pulsating." Well, that's cool, but that really doesn't give me an idea of what this thing is. But then you'll get somebody who maybe in the science field, they'll grab them and say, "You know, Joe." It kind of looked like a, a reactor, but maybe some kind of plasma going through it. <laughs> but, you know, they're actually putting it in terms you can understand, and, and it gives you an idea of how some of these fields, you know, work. And, and it's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have never seen a UFO, in, in any UFO that is active. It doesn't matter how close you get to it, the pictures are always blurred.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: and it's because of some type of field, because there has been some pictures taken where there was a UFO on the ground, and mm-hmm. the pictures were fairly clear. So, you know, it must have been off. You know, it must have been in park mode or whatever they call it. But it's true. And and as far as, and I don't know any ufologists that would argue that point. You know, they would all agree that, you know, when you try to get a picture of a UFO when it's in flight or if it's just hovering or something, you're not going to get it. It's going to always be distorted because of the field around it. Uh And I've heard many people argue if it's, you know, magnetic fields, gravitational fields, some kind of fields we don't understand, which I'm sure that's what it is. Uh But then, you know, the TR-3B, or whatever they call it, yeah. uh, the black triangle, yeah. it has some type of feel. Um, it's not a heavy feel, it, it does. there is some distortion when it's in flight, you will notice um, if the, like, the light coming off the craft itself or whatever, those yeah. ports are on yeah. the bottom, have a wave to them, so you know there's some distortion there, but yeah. not, not like you see on what we would consider to be an extraterrestrial craft. Yeah. Um, but that's the only terrestrial base mm-hmm. craft I know that possesses any type of feel, all the rest of them are just...
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, Remember, remember. Speaking of that field on the on the triangular craft that you mentioned, remember that Werner von Braun in 1939 designed a helicopter that was disc shaped, you know, yeah. like after flying saucer, and and inside there were four propellers and an ordinary engine, and then the hull was porous, and then what the idea was that you the propellers when they when the Start up the engine. They would pull some air through the porous hull and, and push it out the bottom. Through the bottom of the, the bottom of the craft, will also have a porous hull. But but because of the aerodynamics, he showed that 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 for all, for each pound of air that was pulled through the hull, forty times that was forced around the hull. You know, and so what he was doing is he was controlling the boundary layer. You see, and see on the on that triangular craft. When you're talking about the distortion, you're you remembering that Werner von Braun, once he came to America, you know, could, you know, could, you know, was obviously going to share everything he had with the Americans, including his design for the helicopter. And and so it was, no, and, and he was able to show that because he was controlling the boundary layer around his helicopter. That helicopter was actually capable of traveling faster than the speed of sound without creating a shock wave, because a shock wave is caused because the air molecules have to get out of the way of the airplane. And if it's an airplane like the Bell X-1 with a sharp nose, then the shock wave, the molecules have to form a shock wave as they're physically bouncing out of the way of the airplane. But see, with his porous hull, he was pulling all those air molecules through the hull, and therefore there was no shockwave. And, and he was very upset when Adolf Hitler pointed, and, and Hermann Göring pointed out that if you put on a bomb bay or guns or anything on the, on the bottom of the craft, that you destroyed the airflow around the disk. And so that's when he set that aside and then went back to his first love with the rockets. And, see, once he came to America, well, sure as the devil, the Americans would have said, well, let's try some of your other ideas, Werner. So, you know, it's no surprise to me that, that, um, you, you know, you'd find airplanes like the U.S. Air Force, you know, triangular, you know, the current triangular fighters that might very well have porous hulls and be using those same boundary flow conditions. But remember in 1949, the U.S. Air Force, Publicly announced that it thought that the most perfect design for an airplane would be triangular with a delta wing. And what they and then originally the F-102 Delta Dagger wasn't going to have a fuselage; it was just going to be the delta wing. And what they found was that in order to be stable, you had to be able to direct the thrust down from the bottom of the triangle. You had to physically be able to change the shape of the wing and controlled the boundary layer. And in 1949, the technology wasn't quite up to it, so they put the um, fuselage on the F-102 and came out with the Delta Dagger, but continued the triangular wing research. Remember, one of the things the Air Force loved about the triangular wing design is that they were stackable. You could have, like, a great big one on the bottom, a somewhat smaller one in the middle, and another one on the top. And therefore, your therefore your you, you know that whole stack was itself an airplane, you, you know. And therefore, that whole stack, if you had the technology proper, if you were burning, you know, a fuel that didn't necessarily require air to burn, that whole stack could you know you could take off. You'd use the bottom big one like an aircraft carrier, take off from you know from an airport with so the other two on top of it. And then, you know, the planes with pilots on board each one of them could separate in flight, and then the last one could, you know, fly itself to the very edge of the atmosphere at 80 miles, depending entirely on, the, on your command of hypersonic technology and stuff. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me that there'd be a lot of triangular-shaped airplanes around. Here in 2008, you know, the Air Force has been
0: working on them for 60 years. I know. Well, isn't there supposed to be, I mean, I, last I had heard, and it was like 98 or 97, that they were working on commercial, there were going to be, commer- well, there would be mm-hmm. commercial applications for space planes. Mm-hmm. But you know what, I have not seen a space plane yet. I mean, we're not going to count the shuttle, because that thing's a piece of junk. But um, yeah. mm-hmm. in, what's bad about the shuttle guys and girls, it was a piece of junk today that rolled off the floor. Uh, and that hasn't changed in uh, 20 years. It's been around, and I, mm-hmm. and and I don't get NASA. Uh, I don't. I mean, now I know the Air Force has part of what's going on in NASA, Now they kind of took control over there. Or, mm-hmm. well, I don't mm-hmm. know. If to, I don't. Maybe control is not. The, it's too strong of a word. But mm-hmm. uh, there does seem to be, you know, some some well sharing of technologies going on over there. Mm-hmm. And we already know the Air Force's technology is more advanced mm-hmm. than it, mm-hmm. NASA's is. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, you know, here. I mean, have you seen the new? Um, moon mission program. I mean, this is the Apollo upgrade, is what this is. Yeah.
1: Now, now the child, new moon, I've seen the new moon mission, mission yeah. program, and to my way of thinking, it only makes sense if you recognize that the American Air Force already has at least two bases on the moon and has already has space planes capable of Policing the inner solar system, like from America out to the, you know, halfway from from the Earth out mm-hmm. to Mars and stuff, because the that capture that the new moon program with those, you know, capsules and stuff that could be rope, you know, controlled by uh, computers and, and yeah. you know would, miss, would would allow you to ship supplies out to places that, you know, that only makes sense if you expect that there's another way for people to get there, mm-hmm. you, you, you know. And, and, I, and I think that the fact that the U.S. Air Force it hasn't set a peep, even though things like Japan you now put the lunar orbiter in place, but then we don't see any pictures from the Japanese lunar orbiter because they've got to be cleared by the American Airlines. Well, you
0: heard what they said about the Chinese picture, that it was fake. Uh,
1: uh-huh. And when it was
0: analyzed by some Chinese uh, pe- uh, some uh-huh. film experts, they said it was fake, too. Of course, uh-huh. China swears it's not fake, and uh-huh. Japan says all it is, but you know, it was mm-hmm. funny, because when I seen the Chinese picture, um, uh-huh. I had remembered seeing a particular picture taken from one of the Apollo missions, and I swear, Charles, it's the uh-huh. same picture. Well, it might um, be, yeah. Now, actually, it wasn't an Apollo mission. It was one of the early uh-huh. STS missions, but it looks like the same. I mean, it could have been taken from the same angle and all, yeah. but uh, I'm not buying it. You know, there's just something there, just what uh-huh. two and two, would make it four is what's going on in... Uh, you know, these are all, and, and there's no images from the dark side of the moon from either one of these probes.
1: Uh-huh. And, you know,
0: a lot of people were counting on, or, yeah, a lot of people were counting on that Japan, or especially China. Yeah. If if they had seen something, on the moon would be the ones to release it, but apparently uh-huh. they're not going to.
1: No, nobody wants to upset the U.S. Air Force. No,
0: they just, you know, but and.
1: Remember that Russian astronaut who, he was on one of the UFO shows. He had been in space 12 times. Yeah. And he was a halfway decent artist, and he said that, 11, that that on 11 occasions, and probably the 12th one, but 11 that he was certain of, that he'd hardly taken off from the Cosmodrome and achieved orbit when a UFO fell in behind him and paced him. And he said on one occasion it came alongside, and he could, and it was only a few hundred feet off uh, away from him, and he was able to draw a very fine picture of it. And the picture he drew was a picture of that looks a lot like the SR-71, like a space plane version of the SR-71 uh-huh. with a two-man crew living quarters on board, you know. And the only thing missing from this picture was the U.S. Air Force markings. Yeah. Well, it's funny because somebody, uh-huh.
0: there were uh-huh. some scientists just recently talking uh-huh. about the SR-71. They said they don't understand how we invented a plane like this in, mm-hmm. the, in, in the late 50s. It's a stealth-capable, mm-hmm. supersonic, fast, still fastest plane in the world to date, mm-hmm.
1: and we haven't improved on it. Well, remember the SR-71 was only the training version of the hypersonic fleet. And the hypersonic fleet was the Y-12, the YF-12, and the YB-12. And remember the SR-71, to be hypersonic, you're skidding on your shockwaves, and the atmosphere only forms reliable shockwaves Get on up to 85 miles. Well, that, then the next version of that space plane see, could go to the moon and back. R- remember, in 1951, the U.S. British, the British plan for going to the moon and back in 1951 was to build a space plane, two planes, one on top of the other. The first one would, and when they took off, they'd both be using their engines, and when the when when the two planes got up to some height, like well, hundred like 50, 60, feet, then they would separate, and and the upper one would head into orbit, and they were able to show, for example, that if, that that the two planes that the upper one could make could reach synchronous orbit at twenty two thousand five hundred miles by that technique. and that that when it got to 22,500 miles, it would have already burned 95% of the fuel that it would need to burn to circumnavigate the moon. From the 22,500 miles, it only needed to make one short burn properly timed, and it would do a figure eight path around the moon, after which the question of whether or not it could land on the moon or refuel and take off was just a question of do you have a moon base. Remember, that was a Willie Lay's plan published in a book in 1946. UFO investigators, you know, really, my humble suggestion is that they go back and look at all the books in antique bookstores, all the old books. Yeah, there 40. was a lot of
0: good plans. Uh, there were better plans in the Apollo mission. Yeah, no, that's the for only sure.
1: reason the British didn't go to the moon that way was because they, because they stated. They told Parliament that because of the cost of building a moon base and building that airplane, they wanted to partner with the Americans to do it. And to do that, to do that, the planes would have to have a titanium hull because coming back from the moon, if you when you enter the Earth's atmosphere, you have to come in hypersonic, and that allows you to fly your way, to fly yourself home. Now, Willie Lay, in his 1946 book, did the math and claimed that if you were going to go to the moon and come back that way, that you would want your airport, you'd want your landing field to run 25,000 feet, perhaps more. And there is such a there is such an airport runway, 25,000 feet long, out in Nevada. Yep. Yeah, and uh, of course. The, who knows what there is now, but there was, in the sixties there was one, you know. Yeah, well I,
0: I imagine yeah. our, our re entry technology is better now. We can probably slow down a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know some of the new air brake systems are pretty advanced. Because uh, some mm-hmm. of the stuff they were talking about for one of the new space planes, the air brakes on it were pretty advanced. You know, when you when mm-hmm. you when you're mm-hmm. rolling in at Mach twenty six, Mach twenty eight, Mach thirty mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you you know, and the shuttle just does it by, you know, doing a couple of passes mm-hmm. as it comes mm-hmm. down, but they're saying there's a much easier way there's new air brake systems that should be able to slow it down considerably without ripping the thing apart oh, yeah. uh, so those are going to be interesting to see so mm-hmm. you know that'll considerably shorten the runway they'll need if they can slow uh-huh. down quite a bit more but you know it's always been a fascinating thing and it, you always got to kind of look around and wonder you know mm-hmm. who. It, honestly i really think nasa is just a front to keep the people happy well, look, I don't re- think it's
1: re- remember the decision of hike eisenhower president eisenhower made in nineteen fifty four. Remember remember Werner von Braun and his and Willie in and his close personal you know yachting yeah. buddies. Remember they told the American government that they could put up an artificial satellite in nineteen fifty one but they would have to use like the redstone technology, the military technology to do it. Remember, in 1954, Ike Eisenhower made the decision that, as a matter of policy, the U.S. government would always maintain double programs. Remember, he did so for the International I- I- IGY of 1957, and 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 remember what he said. He said he would the military would do what it needed to do, but. The public stuff would be done by NASA, by public programs, because what he wanted was a training program whereby college students and private industry and the public at large could be involved and invent new things. Eisenhower didn't think of the U.S. military as being very creative or very... Innovative. Oh, okay. He had a point yeah. there. And He wanted a program where people could be very experimental and very creative and so on and then the military program would benefit from that so remember in 1957 the Vanguard rocket was supposed to put up the world's first satellite for the IGY and with a liquid-fueled clusterable rocket even though Werner von Braun and his friends had been held in check or at least had not Publicly put up a, a satellite, you, you know, ever since 1951. And then remember when Vanguard blew up on the pad, and it was obvious that the Vanguard rocket was wasn't going to be able to put up the first satellite the way they wanted. And then remember when the Russians put up Sputnik and stuff. Remember then under public pressure, Eisenhower called in Werner von Braun and Willy Lee and those guys and said, "All right." you can put it up with the Redstone rocket. And then they proceeded, what, in just a matter of a few weeks to put yeah. up a super satellite, Explorer 1, which they could have put up 19, in 1951 and may very well have already been putting up satellites without telling the American public. Because, you know, it seems kind of, remember at the time it seemed kind of suspicious that when you, he called in you know, Werner von Braun and said, Sikkim, you know, you guys do it, Well, you know, all of a sudden there was no development work whatever needed to be done. Why the next? All practically all he had to do was fuel the rocket and punch the button. You know, (laughs) all of a sudden all these concepts—why the upper motor is spinning, so we get an easy—you know—so if one rocket fails, we still get a unified burn. All the all the math, everything was already done. And you say, well, gee, you know, how you know (laughs) it looked kind of suspicious that you know they were looked like they were physically just taken it off the shelf, and like Werner von Braun and it might just as well have gotten it publicly and said, well, we've been doing this for years. So yeah, well, <laughs> I,
0: heard, I heard a lecture that he had given at Harvard, a friend of mine had given it to me, this was in, I think, 60, 62, 63, 64, somewhere mm-hmm. right around there, about this upcoming space program.
1: Uh-huh. And
0: um, he had gotten into it, and he had made several statements that the moon was a stepping stone to Mars.
1: Yeah, that was always really mainstream you know he Mars. said um, well he, you know
0: he said that he, mm-hmm. he considered the technology we possessed was good enough to get us to Mars, but we needed to test it by going mm-hmm. to the moon and see what other kind of things we would have to add mm-hmm. and I found that interesting, I also found it interesting that there was twenty missions paid for, and we only had what 16? 17? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sixteen Seventeen? Mm-hmm. sixteen right yeah. so I mean, the other four missions were paid for, but we we, we scrubbed them and, and that never made any sense to mm-hmm. me. It'd be one thing if we were still paying for them and they weren't paid for, but these were paid for Uh missions. And, you know, so all of a sudden we're not going to Mars and we're not going back to the moon, and and then 30 Mm -hmm. years Mm -hmm. passes and we're talking about maybe going Mm -hmm.
1: back. Yeah. Well, remember, you know, in keeping with that line, remember one of the things I'm certain of is that, like when I was talking with the guy guy called the Norwegian with 2014, he, he claimed that one of his mother's relatives had been personally introduced to Werner von Braun and Willie Ley in nineteen forty nine and this I was talking to him in the, the fall of nineteen sixty two and he claimed that the or, original version of the, the original mission of the space program the the guide, the goal given to Werner von Braun and Willie Ley, was to not Stop at Mars, but to build to the same level of technology that he and his uh, parent, he and his people had, and the reason was because their spacecraft, come, being 20 years in flight, when they got here, about half of the time they weren't reusable because so they were physically worn out. You see, and he claimed that one of the things that would really help his people is if the U.S. government knew enough about their technology to help them repair their spacecraft or to build new ones to return home with. Because he said that the, the, one of the things that happened were among his people was that when they got here, they got very homesick, but about half of the time they couldn't return because the spacecraft wasn't working. And he said they had a policy among themselves that when you came here, you had to stay here 20 years, and then if you could return to their home planet, it was done on a space-available basis. And he said that his mother, when she got here, was, and she had, he had apparently arrived in 1960 or 61, and there were three of them that I was talking to, and he said that when he arrived, his mother was extremely upset. She just hated humans because she discovered that her father had been killed at, you know, in one of the German death camps. And, and, and she, when she, she had spent the whole 20 years coming here looking forward to seeing her father. And that when she got here and she was told that he was dead because he had been killed in the death camps, that the Germans had killed him in the death camps, that she, she was you know, like just beside herself with rage and that you know her hatred for humans was difficult to describe. And remember that in a in a study of the German death camps done by the U.S. Army between like 1946 and 1949, according to a study by the U.S. Army published in January 1949, which wasn't classified when it was published, the the, the they did a study of the groups of people that were put to death in the German death camps and five, some, approximately 5,562 of them or so were put to death who, had, who were genetically coded for 24 teeth and had slightly wet feet and had an unusually calm disposition. And today they tell me that there's a tribe of people in northern Norway called the Samai who fit that description. And I was noticing on Globe Trekker where one of the treks the guy took as a tourist was to go into northern Norway where he came across the Samai. And he was noting how calm and peaceful they were. They looked just like us and looked just like Norwegians. But and and and, ha- and, and liked the play and stuff. But even he noted that they were so calm. Sometimes they didn't seem to be human, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: And but, but you know, since northern Norway has the Finns and the Lap, the Laplanders, and so on, who are you know wonderful, peaceful people, you know, they didn't didn't really stand out. You know, the environment is so harsh. You got to be friends with everybody who'll help you fight off the polar bears, I guess. <laughs> and um, you know, and so so. The original space program, you know, wasn't meant to stop at Mars. That was just supposed to be the testing ground. Now, I noticed that the, you know, that so-called radar station on the last island in the Aleutians, I note that that according to the U.S. government, that's going to cost us more than $70 billion dollars. Now, it's, you know, any grade schooler can tell that you can build a perfectly fine radar station for a hell of a lot less than $70 billion, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah. I note that President Bush stated himself to the media that not everyone on the island would be American. Okay? So, you know, here we are with the, you know, I note that it has the quality that if you look straight up, you're looking directly at Bernard's star, you know, in yeah. that island chain. That, yeah. they're just that setting up chain. a good communication station.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, some kind of relay station or something. Because I'm, uh-huh. I've heard many theories on faster-than-light communications, but uh-huh. not, none that I've seen put into practical use yet. I know the Brits and the Aussies are both working on a, Actually, they're working on two things: uh, breaking uh-huh. down matter and sending it into in the stream, and then trying to also break down matter, send it in the stream, faster than light. Somebody's got to bright idea that they can break us down and shoot us to a planet. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure about that one, Charles. I, I I like the idea of having a ship underneath my feet, man. <laughs> I got you know if it works, that's fine. But you know, I know it'll revolutionize how we tr- you know. would 'cause it be great if you lived on a planet if you could just go have dinner in, in Paris and come home?
1: Yeah, if they ever try it on me, I hope they leave about forty pounds of fat behind yeah, somewhere. Hey, look, can you do a
0: little trimming while we're being transported to take some excess off? Yeah, make sure you
1: transmit my <laughs> sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> I, I know
0: we're getting ready to get close to a. Break. Break here, ladies and I promise mm-hmm. when we come back from the break, I'll open up the auditorium for questions so y'all can get y'all's hands up. And when we come back from the break sure. in a few minutes, we'll, we'll take some questions. But, yeah, it's you know, you hear, you know, stuff like that they're working on. I know there was a one successful test was 1,500. The first test was like three meters, um, mm-hmm. and that was done in Australia. The second one was 1,500 meters, and it was done in the U.K. Mm-hmm. I've heard there's been two more since then, but I haven't heard to um, what extent or what distance. But, Uh you know, I did see something that was interesting today, guys. This was kind of strange, kind of creepy, and kind of funny. They got a chimp in South Carolina on a treadmill. He's hooked to a pair of legs in Japan, and they're on a treadmill. So he's running in in South Carolina, and the the legs in Japan are running the same as he are. These these are for the future, guys. I guess these Uh bionic legs is what you can call them. But um, basically, there will be a reality, and not that far in the future. So they're going to put a chip in your head, and if you've lost your legs or your arms, you'll get one that actually Uh works Um, that is interesting you know we're coming a long ways in technology but it is because of things like when you're talking about the tall whites or when they're talking about what was Uh recovered at roswell or some of the other treaties that supposedly have been cut since the 50s Um, it would make sense that the united states was slowly but surely uh, increasing its technological advantage over the rest of the world and it does seem that Uh way but you know i was reading the other day we spent 980 billion dollars on defense last year Uh um and I think the next closest country was the U.K. at 600 and then the next one was Russia and China. They only spent like 250 each.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. You know what I'm thinking? Oh, yeah, we're, we're calling them the aggressors, but they're not spending a trillion dollars on defense. as we are.
1: Well, as I describe in Book 4, that so-called facility that the U.S. government wants to build in the east of Prague, Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. or somewhere in that vicinity, at which we note the latitude that, that they want to build it at, we note that the we know that the, um, Russians, uh, that the Russian Prime Minister Putin, according to the published news reports, offered to let us build the same facility in the at one of the old unused Russian radar facilities in uh, the Russian province of Georgia or down in that vicinity. But, of course, that's a different latitude. And we note that he offered, that according to his offer, the Russians would even pay for it. And the Russians would, according to, if I understood the news reports correctly, he offered to build, in addition, you know, like rail lines, communication links, between that place in Moscow and that place in Brussels, Belgium, And and the Americans turned it down not because of the money or anything, but because of the latitude. The Americans said they didn't like the physical position, apparently referring to the latitude. Mm -hmm. And and of course, if you're going to send something from our planet to another planet, like one around Bernard's star or one of those other nearby stars, if you're going to transmit with them and stuff, you, you care very much about the latitude because, like like if on the Aleutian Islands, if, you, if you're able to look straight up, you're looking through as little of the atmosphere as possible when transmitting to, you know, another star because that signal strength would be an important thing. In addition, I note that when I was talking to the Norwegians of 2014, they said that one of the problems they had was that that when their spacecraft arrived here in, in near the Earth, they weren't able to go into Earth orbit and decide how, when, and where they were going to land. Especially if the spacecraft was worn out or damaged just from the long journey, they said that there, the that when you came in, they had to land. They had to come straight in and land without going into orbit first. And, and, of course, that, for that reason, they preferred to land along the beaches or the fjords of Norway. The, it allowed them to come in and land uh, uh, over the ocean, but, you know, next to the shoreline, you know. And then once they had slowed down and they had, you know, landed or, you know, stopped a few feet above the water, then it allowed them to bring the craft in, like, up a fjord and stuff and drop it on some hidden faraway beach where nobody would see it. But the, but the lots of times this was not a very good plan and the lots of times it crashed. And one of the problems was that they had no industrial support. So once the craft landed, there was no way to get you know, sometimes it took them like five years just to get replacement parts or replacement fuel. See, that place in, you know, by comparison, see that place in Czechoslovakia. You know, if that were like supposed to be like the first spaceport or associated with that spaceport. You know, mm-hmm. you can imagine all the, you know, the flatland, the steps of Russia and so on. There'd be lots of places for them to come in that are relatively you know, um, open, you know. It's yeah. not like trying to land in the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, we, just, we just don't want the Russians
0: getting the technology. That's all that is. But
1: It seemed to be that exact. Yeah it does.
0: Yeah. But we gotta take a break right quick. So everyone, I want you to please stay tuned to UFO undercover. I'm your host, Joe Montalba. I'm sitting Mm -hmm. and speaking with Charles Holland. We'll be back in about nine minutes, so please stay tuned. Ah, we are. Whoop, now we're clear. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to UFO undercover. I hope everybody's enjoying the show. Uh, a couple quick things before we get Charles back on again. Uh, I wanted to send out our wishes to Brian Bike. I hear he hasn't been feeling good lately. So, Brian, if you're listening, man, anything we can do for you, you know how to get hold to me. www.icar1.com or icar.cox.net. Any of those addresses, I'm easy to attain. Everybody, y'all should send him his best wishes. Brian has done a lot for the field, so you know, everybody wishing well. Also, I have gotten a couple of letters lately about archives with people with QuickTime on their computers. QuickTime has to go if you want to listen to the archives, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it is not compatible with the archives and it causes nothing but problems. And, uh, I've talked to a couple of companies about it. There's nothing they can do about it. QuickTime has to make the uh, appropriate adjustments and they haven't yet. So, If you have QuickTime on your computer, it's going to try to upload into an MP4 uh, video format and uh, it's not going to work. So you'll have to take it off if you want to listen to our archives. Sorry, guys, there's nothing I can do about it. I just thought I'd tell you that. Anyway, Charles, welcome back. Um, Oh, thank you for having me. You know, guys, Charles and I were talking about several things (laughs) at the break. (laughs) Um, You know, I tell the audience a lot of times uh, some of the best conversations happen on the breaks um, because, you know, a lot of times people will tell me stuff at the break they will not say on the radio. So, um, So I tell them all the time, but it's true, a lot of times the best conversations are on the break, but... Um, now, I'm going to kind of go backwards. Well, I'll tell you what. Let me grab these questions right quick. I know poor IR has been having his hand up for like 30 minutes now. it has got to be killing me. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to let him come up and ask a question. IR, you ready? Well, why don't you come up IR, give us your first name and location, and you're live and on the air with Charles Hall.
1: You're very kind, and I'll do my best to answer the questions to um, the best of my ability. Um, everything in all of my books is is perfectly true, as true as I can make it, as I say. And and I'll, I guess I'll take your um, I guess I'll take the questions kind of one at a time. Um, um, you, you'll see in book three that in May of 1967, I, I was shipped to Vietnam. And, um, and the last part of, of book three has some of my Vietnam experiences, including um, my friend my, whose real name was Kenneth E. Baker, he, and the description of how he died to keep me alive in Vietnam. And so one of the things I've always wanted or hoped was that, but I was never able to, was to find some of his relatives. I guess he has a sister that... Uh, or uh, he, he he enlisted in Laporte, Texas, and I guess his some of his relatives later moved to Los Angeles. But I could never locate him. The VA would never help me, and and so if you, you know, uh, I, I always wanted to to tell. I always want, hoped his relatives would, would to tell his relatives about the sacrifice Ken, the real Kenneth E. Baker made to keep me alive. Now in answer to your question about the tall whites, yes, that we we became, very fond, that we became very good friends, uh, as you see in my books. and uh, that, of course, that was platonic. Um, the, the, um, h- however, um, being around the, to begin with, being around the tall whites, there was always a certain tension. It was so easy when I was around them for me to forget that they really aren't human and for them to forget that I'm really not a tall white. And of course, that means that if anything you know, unexpected happened, I would be the one that would get injured. They don't handle anger the way humans do, as you see in my books. And so if you ever, if you ever accidentally offend one, then, you know, <laughs> you, as book three describes, you may or may not get a chance to explain that you're only human, because each one of them has a separate individual personality. So when, you, when I say, well, yes, I, me and the teacher and Range 4 Harry and tour guide and, uh, and, and uh, school bus driver and co-pilot, the one who wanted to be called a mechanic, and, Pam, and Pamela, and, and the twins, the lady and the sister and brother who were twins, that we became as close as any friends. That's kind of like saying, well, yes, I have some friends who live in New York City. You know, would I ever want to live in New York City? And the answer is no. New York City can be a pretty rough place, or Chicago. I have friends who live in Chicago. But, you know, Chi-town can be a mighty rough place if you happen. <laughs> You have yeah. no sense. Some of those guys, you know, you get caught down in New York City out on a pier at night, and you may have to find yourself saying yes or no, sir. You know, to come out of there. You know, and because each one of them had their own personality, and some were, some would, give, some would do, you know, anything they could to keep you alive. There was an, a tall white general that I that I mentioned in um, in the book. Um, that night, when I was when I took my two and a half tr- ton truck out in 1965, and I still thought I was hallucinating when I saw him, that general—I mean, he—that sucker still scares me. Although he—he was—he—he he was friendly to the humans, but you know, when a general says I'm friendly, that just means I gave you an order. I expect you to take it. You know, so so when you talk about the tall whites, my first point is because of that wide variety, each one is a separate individual that when you say, well, if you're around them, you really can't forget that they are not human and that I'm not a, and they really can't forget that I'm not at all white or something very bad would happen to me because if they become angry, I, you know my reactions are so much slower than theirs you know, they would already be administering tall white justice while I was still trying to figure out what I'd done wrong. Yeah. The second one was that when they sent me to Vietnam I wasn't supposed as I described in book three, I wasn't supposed to get sent to the Delta. I was supposed to get to Cam I was supposed to get sent to Cameron Bay. I was single at the time. Uh, one of the girls that went to class with me in Cambridge High School was a nurse station at Cameron Bay. It was supposed to be like like the world's best rest stop. Cameron Bay was sort of like being in san francisco with the ocean on the wrong side you know and as a weather observer you know i wasn't supposed to be out there taking enemy fire and stuff but as i describe in the book i mean i mean those were my orders to so check into Thompson nuts so everybody knew i was in country and then catch the next plane to cameron bay and say hello to my you know friend my my girlfriend from high school and, but, on, but as I describe in my book, it, you know, I got into Tonsonut and the sergeant was looking over my old records and he said, I see you're a man that can take care of himself when things get really tough. And we just had a guy killed in the Delta yesterday and the captain says, I shouldn't send anybody there unless it looks like he can take care of himself. So he tore up my orders and wrote me new ones. <laughs> I was on the next plane to into the Delta. And then when the South Vietnamese Army that was supposed to protect me and the other 10 or 11 guys that were there when they deserted well, it was time to learn how to be a soldier. You know, so, you know, I learned how to fire the M60 machine gun in the rain. You know, and um, it, there's not all that much to it. <laughs> there's a lot of praying and a lot of homesickness that goes with it. But, you know, as far as, you know, and, and you, know, I, you know, I got, you know, they, they passed out M16s and 200 rounds of ammunition, and it was time to, you know, and, and so I got an award for defending in 37 communist attacks. Three different times they came over the wire, and we had to fight them hand to hand for our lives. And if there was, a, you know, a lucky me, they made more mistakes than me. I certainly made plenty. But lucky me, a ple- I'm Roman Catholic and I'm very really religious. Lucky me, it pleased God that you know I should come back alive. But you know, as you see in the book, my friend Baker didn't, and. In that chapter entitled "Yes," I describe how it came to be that he willingly gave his life so that I could come back alive. And you know, if you'd if I, if it'd been my choice, I wouldn't have hesitated to give my life so he could come back alive. He was a better man than me, and 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 so you know, when I got back from Vietnam, you know, I was just kind of—I I mean, I I wanted to come home. I, did, I you know, I wanted to hang up my gun and hang up my rifle and take off the uniform and just go back to Wisconsin and just be the person I was.
0: Yeah, yeah. That,
1: that, and, and, then, and then another one that people miss is the Nellis Incident of September 1968. If you go back to the books that you will find in, in, um, uh, in, in antique stores and stuff that talk about UFOs in September 1968, You'll see that it was widely reported on the national news for a week, like C B S Evening News that I used to watch in a, in a in a bar in Madison, Wisconsin, that for a week one of the scout craft sat down a mile from the range three weather shack and sat there for a week. And according to the according to the published reports, whenever any human would go out there, some the 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 door to the they were using the scout craft with the door opening on the other side, and the RV model allowed you to camp for about a week in the scout craft. What would happen is the tall whites would stay back by the scout craft and a human would come out from the scout craft and meet you halfway and ask for the wreck and ask for somebody to come and talk to them. And this was september nineteen sixty eight. I came back from Vietnam in May of 68, and I was given an honorable early discharge because of my service, and because my normal discharge date was July, would have been July 68, and they'd and 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 asked me repeatedly if I wanted to reenlist. They would have sent me to the U.S. Air Force Academy and made me an officer and gave me a career assignment at the Indian Springs, and then whenever I needed a break, they would have told me to go fly herky birds across the Atlantic, you know, to England and back and just have fun. And then I could be, you know, like the commanding officer of the ranges. And because the Paul Whites and I had established that rapport. and But, you know, I, I, I really wasn't, you know, I really didn't want to at the time. I mean, you know, I was still remembering what it was like the night when, when Baker left. And, also, how frightening some of the tall whites can be who aren't used to being around humans like that general and stuff. And, and, in the, and according to the Nellis incident, that went on for a week until the number two man at Nellis, the base information officer, who was a general, came back with the records of five people. The first set of records was mine. And he said, they really don't know where Charlie is here's everything they knew about where I was and where four other people were. And they said that was the best they could do. And my friends who were working at the Nellis weather station at the time said the number two man at Nellis had come in and asked each one of them if any of them knew where I was. I was somewhere in Madison. And they even went around to my mother's house and asked her, where am I? And I still remember the night that I was in Madison on State Street, and two FBI men were walking up and down in every bar on State Street, asking if they had, meant, asking if anyone knew where my current address was. I was staying up on the other side of the square. I remember going into one of my favorite bars on State Street and having the bar, having the bartenders say, "Well, they were just in here a half hour ago." If you, call, you know, and and but I really didn't. I'm, I'm really not a military kind of person. I really. You, you know, and, and so, yes, they wanted me back. I, I, but, you know, if I had my life to do over again, I think I would have still made the same decision because I, I know this sounds silly. It's fun being human, you know? I mean, we get to run around and play and be you know, we get to have rough and tumble games like football. We heal right up. If we get angry, it doesn't last forever, you know? When I was a young man... Me and the other young men, we could go out and eat the crap out of each other, and then laugh and be friends. And and the tall whites, you know, they're so frail; their bodies aren't like that. I know they live longer, like 600 years or so, 700 years. And I suppose it's fun being a tall white too. But you know, um, yeah. I'm what God made me. You know, and you know, uh, in September 68, I just wanted. to To go back to Wisconsin, I just wanted to stay in Wisconsin and just go back to being the person that you know I'd always dreamed of being. You know, getting a degree in science and and just doing oh fun things. You know, I mean, by the time '68 was over, I'd seen the world. I mean, getting shot at 30. You know, I mean, I must have survived thousands of shells in those 37 attacks. It wasn't that much fun. You know, one night I was sitting in the barracks at Camp in uh, in Vietnam and it had a brick wall and a slate roof and, and the comms fired one shell, a registration round from a the mortar they'd moved up and the frickin' mortar was all, was less than a quarter mile from us and the the other guys I was with as soon as they, we heard the shell come out of the mortar but they turned off the lights so I was sitting there in total darkness and the shell hit the other side of the wall and slid down the other side of the wall till it was directly opposite my the middle of my back and exploded. And of course, a mortar shell can't kill you with concussion the way a 500-pound bomb can. It it, it either gets you with the shrapnel or you walk. Well, the bricks stopped all the shrapnel, but in the darkness, I didn't know which side of the wall the shell was on. I thought it killed me because, you know, coming right down between your shoulder blades, you know, it's just like six inches of brick between you and the blast when it went blammo. I mean... I, I walked around for like two days. I wasn't sure if I was dead or alive, yeah. you know? Walking in
0: a days, yeah. Yeah,
1: and I mean, it wasn't until I started getting really hungry that I decided that I would eat and keep my body alive, so when the angels came for me, I could say, well, I did the best I could, you know? And then if I was sitting in the chow hall eating, I started to come back to my senses, realizing I was still alive. I mean, the world was so stupid, you know, the war, everything looked so stupid. I, I can hardly describe it, you know, and, and those kinds of things went into my thinking. So, you know, when I came home, I just wanted to be home. Done. Yeah, I
0: just wanted to be home, done with it, out of it. I don't blame you for that. They, they tried, like, every trick they could to get me to re-up like, I Yeah, thinking.
1: I mean, I mean, let's face it, it might be fun to go, it might be fun, like, to get on board a spacecraft and go to another planet, but we're talking about doing that with our human friends, you know. Yeah. You, you know, doing that with a group of of friends who aren't human who may not understand you if you get sick or if you get out of sorts or you know the human emotions now that's a horse of a different color you know you,
0: don't do well yeah, a, you know, if
1: I, you know I, I wouldn't mind taking a fun vacation to Mars or something but I'm talking about doing it with my friends if I were young and where for, for you you know when I, when I think of doing stuff like that I think of taking my going with my friends and then running and playing the way we did when we were young and And you know, but doing it all by yourself with you know if, if you, when you're with a tall white they 're so frail if you were to make the mistake of slapping one on the back you'd, you'd you'd kill him you'd break half the bones in his body,
0: and the other
1: tall whites would administer justice they'd they'd say, you know bad Charlie, you forgot we're not human and,
0: you know yeah. you know they'd
1: react the way we'd react if a gorilla were to come up and slap one of us on the back and break half the bones in our body and so." Yeah. There was a certain amount, even when you were friends, there was a certain amount of tension that you know, because you always had to be on your guard, saying, you know, they're not human. You know, we humans, without thinking, we, you know, like like when I was young, me and the guys with me, it was so natural to walk in and shake hands, or you know, punch each other in the shoulder, or say, you know, or or to pretend to be angry, saying, "Darn you, you, you know, we're late for work, and now I got to eat supper cold." And, you couldn't do any of that with the tall lights, you know, because, they, because they're not human, because they don't see it that way.
0: No, they take it much more personal,
1: yeah.
0: whereas we, as humans, tend to, well, you know, that's part of our yeah. upbringing. We tend to let things roll off of us. You know, I've, I've posed a question on many, on many occasions. Um, how many people would just go to Mars, and you know, we've asked people on many occasions, would they go to Mars uh, if it was a one-way ticket? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and most of them would if they can bring family or friends along with them. That's one of the mm-hmm. conditions most of them will face. So, well, as long as I'm going, with well, you know, if I can bring, like, my wife or my kids or something, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I'll go as a one-way ticket and help set up a colony. So I was surprised by that, mm-hmm. um, that that many would go. I, didn't, I really didn't mm-hmm. think that many people would actually volunteer, but I know when NASA, about two years ago, NASA had did this little thing. It was a testing they were doing to see how many people would volunteer from the United States if we had a colony on NASA on Mars mm-hmm. to go. They, they got so many responses the first day they, they quit it. They, uh-huh. It was overwhelming. I think they said they got almost 2
1: million responses in the, in the first 48 hours. Remember, one of the projects that I personally overheard the American generals talking about with the tall whites I described in greater detail in, ta- in book four that, the, is the tall whites wanted the Americans to build for them another base, which they said would be useful for them, on one of several earth like planets that were uninhabited by intelligent life and too cold for them to work on, but had nice locations and but were in effect were duplicate Earths, the same size and stuff, because our bodies work better in cold thin air than theirs did. And 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 and, 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 and 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 offered to give the Americans, you know, like a second Earth. The only thing was the tall whites wanted this be in charge of the propulsion technology, so they wanted to be in charge of all transportation. They didn't want to share that propulsion technology with humans because whenever you made a deal with the tall whites, they never came to give you anything. It was always a a mutual, you know, if there was something where they benefited and you benefited, then they'd make the deal. But, you know, they'd be easy to deal with that way. But sometimes it was just like. In, like in my case, they wanted a happy playground for their children to play on, so like they were willing to make deals with me that, you know, gave them a happy playground for their children and stuff like that. But they never came just to train train us idly or to give us technology or whatever. No,
0: just like we wouldn't do with any countries on the planet. We'd want something in exchange. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's just good trading practices yeah. there. And not giving us propulsion technology. I hate to say, it's probably a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, I don't, well, that's I don't,
1: how they thought. Well, I don't, I don't you yeah. know,
0: I I, I want to mm-hmm. say that humanity's ready for colonization, but we're not. We're ready for globalization on our own planet, but we're not ready to be out, you know, messing with other planets. We're just not quite that mature mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. You know, I think I think in in, the, in at least in the short term, we would cause us, it would cause us more problems than it would solve. Hundred years from now, maybe 200 years from now, we might be mm-hmm. mature enough to start thinking about, um, you know, colonization outside of the solar system. But like I tell everybody all the time, before we start thinking about moving outside the solar system, let's master the solar system first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, one little baby step at a time. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 well, because you know our solar system is a fascinating place. There's a, there's a lot of interesting stuff in our solar system, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we could spend literally decades. Going over the moons of you know of Saturn and Jupiter, even some yeah. of the moons out. You know, the Oort cloud itself, the Kuiper belt. All, all of these things are, would be just mm-hmm. fascinating study places for us, and we'd probably learn a lot. Plus, it would help us, you know, fine uh-huh. tune our space technologies.
1: And and even and and even nearby solar systems like yeah. the one for the Norwegians of 2014. It'd take a while, you know, decades to do that. What's the closest to us? Uh, uh, Proxima Centauri, right? Alpha, yeah. And um, th- it's, there's a three-star system there. Um, Alpha Centauri, Proxima Centauri. There's like a, one of those is a double star. So those three, they're like at three, three and three-quarter light years away. Excellent place to start. Yeah. And but then then the next one out is Barnard's Star yeah. at you know five and a half light years. And, and, and remember, that, remember that the Earth, or the Sun, in terms of stars in the galaxy, the Sun is unusual, is, is, in an un, is like in the middle of an open area. Most stars have another star within two light months of them. But the Sun, you know, the closest star being at three and three-quarters light years, is unusually isolated as stars go. And, um, and, therefore, what the 12 whites wanted, you know, the reason the 12 whites were here is because they were island rocking, you know, across yeah. this open area. And, and um, therefore, they really needed a base in a warm place like, like Nevada.
0: Yeah, a good place for them to come hang out, volunteering their you know, stuff, pay out their aircraft, mm-hmm. which is just stuff we did. I mean, we did that in the war, that's why we secured yeah. certain yeah. islands so we but. could hop from one to the other to the other
1: yeah they had to repair and refurbish their craft, as I described in the opening chapter of book three that the night that their deep spacecraft came in carrying meteor, meteor damage, they had to land that craft was i mean it was just barely hanging together you know I mean the meteor had punched a hole from the, you know from the top on down through at about a thirty degree angle and had just blasted its way all the way through the craft you know. And, you know, they were
0: looking somewhere in there. Let's see, the I see somebody else got their hand? Ah, Linda does. So, Linda, mm-hmm. why don't you come up, tell us where you're at, and you're live and on the air with Charles Home. Oh, wait. Mm-hmm. Right, hold on. Now, go ahead. This is clear. Okay, guess something's wrong with that. Well, I'm sorry about that, boo. I'm not sure what was going on there, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, but uh, should be able to talk. I don't know. You know, sometimes technology wants to be, you know, we haven't quite mastered all of our technologies mm-hmm. yet. But that takes me back to science. I mean, science is wrong more than it's right. You know, I mean, it really uh-huh. is. You know, somebody was telling me the other day, "Well, you got to take science as a conclusive fact." I said, "Why are they are wrong more than they're right?" I said, "I said if you take the last two thousand years of science, and I said almost all the conclusions prior to hundred years ago have been changed." Uh-huh. I said, "There's a few basic ones that you know are going to stay the same." I said, "But in general, a lot of them have changed." Um, you know, so, uh-huh. And then a lot of them have been improved on. Um, mm-hmm. They haven't so much changed as they've been improved on. But then a lot of them were just outright wrong. In the medical uh, field alone, and we just watched this, about a matter of fact, on uh, Science Discovered. In the medical field alone, there were 1,700 conclusions that were made in the last 500 years that were completely and totally false,
1: mm-hmm.
0: absolutely and totally. Now this is supposed to be hardcore science, and um, it's, it's mm-hmm. and false, but. It's like I say about Einstein all the time. I said if Einstein would have had a supercomputer like most of us have sitting on our desktops today, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure his theories and, and what he would have came up with would have been much more advanced than what he, was, mm-hmm. you know, he came up with at the time. Uh, you Because know, some of the scientists, if you give them the right equipment and, and they've already got a lot of the work done for them, they mm-hmm. can expand on it. Um, but I don't know. Science always has cracked me up because it's one of my favorite things. and I love technology, but uh, mm-hmm. I learned a long time ago. You know that they'll one they'll say one thing. Well, it's like the Big Bang theory. I, I remember when the Big Bang mm-hmm. came out, everybody said, "Oh, well, this is it. There is nothing else." Then this young astronomer found a group of solar systems. I mean, a group of galaxies that were clustered together and were not moving away from, weren't mm-hmm. heading our way. They were sitting. They were stationary and they were clustered together. Well, that does not work in the Big Bang theory. You can't have that. You just can't have that. Plus, you can't have solar systems on the outside younger than solar systems on the inside Uh it has to be the other way around well Uh i mean galaxies but unfortunately we have galaxies some of the galaxies on the outside are younger than the ones on the inside which doesn't work Uh so you know that was another theory of course they said it was a theory but you know they were presenting it as a fact
1: Uh and now
0: they're kind of having to swallow down on that
1: Uh (laughs) you bring up a good point See, whole photon theory hypothesizes that there's a third field inside the photon and and, and says that if you look at carefully at the results of famous standard experiments like Michelson-Morley and the Waterfill Telescope and the toroidal coil, you'll see that there's a third field associated with photons and also with electromagnetic phenomena. And one of the places that one of the consequences of Hall photon theory is that the redshift the, the, on which the Big Bang theory is based now has another alternate explanation and now there's another kind of way for light to lose energy as it ages because now there's a third field and so as the photon is traveling you know as you remember as you know if you're looking at light from a distant galaxy you're looking at light that's very old that's come from a very far long distance and now there's a way for the light there's another field there so there's more physical interactions that can take place between light and, you know, the gases of space and so on, the ions of space and so on. And also, if you look at a distant galaxy, let's say a galaxy that's 10 billion light, or say 5 billion light years away, in order for the light to, even though the light from that you're seeing here on Earth might have started from opposite sides of the galaxy, like you might be looking at two photons that originally came from stars that were on opposite sides of the galaxy and might be like you know, like several hundred, like several like a million light years apart. In order for it to arrive here on Earth at the telescope, those two light photons had to come closer and closer together gradually over you know, like several over millions of years, if you look at a galaxy that's five billion years away. And, therefore they have to have physically traveled side by side for like for as long as man has been on this earth prior to reaching our telescope see well that means that if there's more if there's more if there's three fields and a photon that means that you have millions of years for those reactions to take place so even if that third field only weakly interacts with the world around that the way the fields in the neutrino only weakly interact with the world around it, that means that you have millions of years for those reactions to finally occur and to take energy out of the light, leaving it redshifted. So that means that the galaxy you're looking at doesn't have to be moving away from you for the photon to show a redshift, you see? And, and therefore, therefore, the Big Bang Theory, the whole premise of the Big Bang Theory, that distant galaxies are moving away from us, you know, goes out the window. Yep. Uh,
0: oh, I'll tell you what. Well, I just got Linda's question. She sent it to me sure. in text. So let's grab that right quick. It says, um, it says, we provide them with a place to stay, clothing, food, and they land whenever they want. How did this start, and why does the U.S. government allow it? Uh, I'm sorry, um, would you repeat the question? Yeah, that's not a problem. It says, uh, it, says it it says says we provide them with a place to stay, clothing, food, and they can land whenever they want. And what the, she wanted to know is how did this get started with the tall whites in the U.S. government and why does the U.S. government allow it?
1: Well, to begin with the, uh, um, the answer to the question, how did it get started, I cover in one of the chapters in Book 4, uh, uh, how, how I believe it got started, and the, and the reason the government allows it is because the U.S. the U.S. government would do anything for technology transfer. in in the 1960s when when Proxmire was senator from Wisconsin, the U.S. Senate has always had a policy that two senators are supposed to be one from each party are supposed to be told everything in the, uh, every secret in the U.S. government so that, the, so that they can direct the voting of the other senators on national priority issues, on national security issues. And it used to be Proxmire and Goldwater were those two senators. And and, and when Proxmire was senator, one time he was going to give a Golden Police Award to the Air Force because they had purchased something like $672,000 worth of children's clothing, appropriate for children four and five years old, both boys and girls, the U.S. Air Force trucks had picked it up at the Sears Warehouse in Los Angeles, California, and delivered it to the desert north of Indian Springs, Nevada. And that's what he publicly stated. And he was going to give the Air Force a Golden Police Award for delivering that. You know, six, it was at the time it would have physically been clothes enough for gee, maybe a thousand kids at, at the prices of those days. And 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 and, and the and when he asked the Air Force, you know, um, you know, why are you delivering so many children's clothes to some unknown place north of Indian Springs, Nevada, out in the desert? not the Air Force General that was with him said he didn't have the faintest idea later, when, but the General said he would check on it. And this was at a press conference in, in Madison, Wisconsin cause, you know, I'm from Wisconsin. And, 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 and the General went back to the Pentagon, and the Pentagon, the low-ranking General said they didn't know, they, they couldn't answer the question. But then after a week, the, secret, the, the high-ranking generals, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, put out a statement that said the expenditure was perfectly ju- they checked into it. the expenditure was perfectly justified but wouldn't say why and so they didn't want to be asked any more questions about it. Mm. And of course really it's because they were delivering all those clothes to the tall white base at the North up in area 54 and using it for trading material And what they were getting and what by delivering the, to the tall white anything they asked for the scouts, the scout craft were built from American Night parts. That the, 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 except possibly for the propulsion system, which the tall whites, you know, would just say we could use some titanium, like to repair the outer hull and so on. And, and the, 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 the 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 U.S. government would give them anything they wanted, and what they got in return was technology transfer. So, like as as I describe in my books, especially in book four. Uh, 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 as an example, um, communications equipment. The tall whites, you, you know, you know, one of the things that they benefited from was, was being able to, like, if a radio didn't work or if their electronics didn't work, to be one of the things they benefited from was being able to ask the U.S. Air Force if they could have like an off-the-shelf radio or an off-the-shelf, you, you know. And then the air force, you know, if, if 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 you know, you know, so by showing the air force how to build better communications equipment, better radios, then the tall whites could get replacement parts whenever they wanted them. And the U.S. Air Force had better radios for its military. And so, see, there was a whole range of things like that where the tall whites, where it benefited the tall whites to show us how to do things better, you know. And on the other hand, there were things like the propulsion system or. The tall whites didn't see an advantage, and so, therefore, they wouldn't share. You see, and yeah. and the government was happy to get whatever they were willing to share. Oh, I
0: can imagine our government. And
1: and, and so, in return, the government was happy to to, to, deliver, to give them the base and you no, know, you, you know, the the landing area for the deep spacecraft out at Dogbone Lake, and in you know which you can see on the map, and and, uh, and and I discussed that in book four in greater depth, and. Uh, and there's a lot of aspects of that that, you know, time doesn't permit me to go into yeah. on the radio okay. show. And, but, but, yeah, the, the, the Air Force, uh, the, for the Air Force, that was, like, big-time stuff. Yeah.
0: Well, let's see. we got a couple more hands. Let's see if we can squeeze them out. I know we're getting short on time here, mm-hmm. so uh, let's see who we have up next. Lee Spirit, Lee, wants to come up? Give us your first name and location, and you're live and on air with Charles Hall. I
1: not
0: hear nothing huh? I don't hear anything either. I oh, don't either. Yeah, I was just making sure it wasn't on my end. I'm go ahead and read that. Turn him off there. Um, Lee, not sure what was going on there, buddy, but you had no audio at all, so you might want to test your mic out right quick. IR, I see you got your hand back up. Why don't you come up, give us your first name and location, and you're live and on air with Charles Hall.
1: excellent question. Um, the tall whites certainly like it warmer than we do and their chil- and, and when it starts getting too, when, it, when it starts getting cold for them and I'll, the coldest I ever saw them out with their children was 42 degrees Fahrenheit and the children then as I described in, in in my in, book, in the books um, in, in book two, um, the, the, the 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 child that I called the little fat astronaut was virtually sick with a cold, and he was so determined he was going to come out and play with me even though he was sick. So, the, the adults, of course, with you know bigger suits and better you know better t- and uh, more experience, you know, were more willing to go out with their suits on and stuff when it was cold. But still, they didn't they didn't they didn't take the kids out and play. They didn't like to go out and play if it got cold. Now they liked it warm, and their home planet is larger than the Earth, and ha- and it's a desert-type planet, and so like Nevada or the Australian Outback and stuff for them, uh, you, you know, those are areas that where they naturally feel right at home. Now, in book three, in that opening chapter, you know, when that spacecraft, deep spacecraft, was coming in damaged, they had the land. And I've always felt that if they had had any other main base for the deep spacecraft other than Nevada, they would have used it then. Now, that was, that was early December, and so I've always felt that if they had had a base in Australia where they could come in with, where they could have put in, they, would, they wouldn't have risked coming in in a storm at Mount Charleston, uh, at the ski area at Mount Charleston the way they did. The, the, um, y- you know, how, um, y- if, if it, you know, because they were literally risking their life to come in that way. Uh, the, um, the, the problem from their point of view with the Australian outback is the industrial base. You know, you know, getting you know, getting high-tech titanium and high-tech things out there. But now they certainly had scout craft bases all over. They, in Indian Springs Valley alone, they had at least five. And the scout craft, which were built with American parts, could go anywhere here on this Earth, or to the Moon, or to Mars. They could take them at least as far out as Jupiter, probably Saturn, because the RV model was like room and supply, food and supplies for like five people for a week. And the scout craft technology was the same as the deep spacecraft, so they could, they, you know, they had no problems. Taking it up to like say 30 percent the speed of light and making a crossing to Jupiter in just a, you know a few you know in a few hours, and so you know for them to take it out to the moon and come back to Australia and stuff like that with the scout craft, that was simple. When they were repairing it, when that deep spacecraft that was damaged, when they finally brought it back out to be repaired, well in an instant not in this book they they, they took it out for a test drive with, to the moon and back, and so taken it from the Earth and from America, the Australian, back as well within the technology of their scoutcraft. Uh, however, I'm not sure that they... Uh, 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 I could believe that the only main base they had for the deep spacecraft was at Indian Springs, uh, or perhaps off in Utah or something. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I, I could believe that was the case, because from their point of view, they're not really coming to the Earth to for vacations. They're coming here because they need a, they need a place for, the, for their craft to put in,
0: <coughs>
1: to repair and refuel, and then to stand out the space again. And see, the thing they liked about, one of the things they liked about Nevada was that it's as silly as it sounds, is that it was close to Las Vegas. And in 1965, Las Vegas was a very interesting town in the middle of a very big desert where you could see all kinds of people and not ask any questions, you know. Yeah. If the People along you know, about 12.30 at night in Las Vegas in 1965, everybody looked a little weird, so if they dressed up to look like humans. Yeah, came still still do in yeah, 2008. Can, and so from their point of view, the, 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 a base in the middle of the Outback in Australia might have lots of good qualities, but on the other hand, it didn't have that same human interest for them the way, say, Las Vegas did, you know, because they're just like us. They get bored, too. The, the, when you went and talked, like, with the teacher, one of the most common topics to talk about was ladies' fashions and how to go into Las Vegas and buy clothes for the, for the young ladies. who, the, ladies, the, the mothers who had had children and were just now able to get, where their children were now old enough so they could start going out again, and, and, and remember, since they live 10 times longer than humans, that means that if they get bored, they get like 10 times more bored than we do, because it lasts last 10 times longer. And so, so, so from, from their point of view, if they could, as long as they could have a nice main base for the new arrivals, for the main craft to put in in Nevada, one was really all they needed, but the scout craft could take them to all sorts of other scout craft bases. It wouldn't surprise me if there was a scout craft base or one or more in Australia or, you know, especially in the outback and stuff that they might go to in the wintertime. That wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Uh, as far as a base for their deep spacecraft, though, Dogbone Lake is so perfect for them, uh, you know. But, and as I say, that night that the deep spacecraft came in damaged, I myself, at the time, wondered, it being December, why they hadn't just put in, landed in the deserts of Australia. But if they're coming here from Arcturus, they're coming here from the Northern Hemisphere. So in order for them to have put into Australia, they would have had to go on past the Earth in space, stopped in space, and come back to land. And see, their ships are powered, are pushing against the gravity field, and so they're very conscious of the way the Earth and the way the gravity fields look when you're out in space. That's why they only wanted to land on the night of the full at sundown on the night of the full moon. They only wanted to take off at n- midnight on the night of the new moon because they were very conscious of those gravity fields. And in that sense, Australia looks different to them than Nevada yeah, that, from yeah. the point of view of the gravity fields.
0: Yeah, I, I could see that, and I could see why they would only be. Out I mean, usually you're only going to have one main base for if you're going to have the interstellar traveling
1: like right? so That's how we
0: do it. But I know we're out of time, so one more time, tell them where they can find the book. Give them the name one more time, so, and then
1: tell oh, them where they can um, find it again. Um, well, um, uh, yeah, I have a website which you have a nice link to on your website. Uh, my website is um, www.millennialhospitality.com. Uh, that's with two, you know, two M two M's, and two L's. And the book can be, the, 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 my books, the Millennial Hospitality Series, can be purchased um, directly from Author House at one eight 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 two eight zero seven seven one five 280 7715 here in America, or they can be purchased from my website. I'm selling hardback copies. Or they can be purchased from any bookstore in the world by just asking because they're print on demand. Or they can be purchased from Amazon.com. They can be ordered from Amazon.com at, at, or, or through Amazon.com anywhere in the world, like in Australia or in the U.K. or anywhere around Europe. And um, and so they're very easy to get to, or they're very easy to purchase, or they're very easy to locate. And, uh, and I really appreciate being on your show. I always enjoy being on your show, and I wanted to thank you very much.
0: Oh, you're always Europe, a great guest,
1: so. Charles. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. I always love having you on. I know um, actually we ran over a little tonight, but that's fine. But um, you're always a great guest. It's always a very interesting topic. I, I see they'll be talking about this long mm-hmm. after me and you are off the air tonight because we have a online support group and uh, where they go in a lot of times and they'll discuss mm-hmm. the shows afterwards. So they'll be long after me and you've gone to bed. They'll still be talking uh-huh. about
1: it. And, and I'll, I'll be giving a book signing up. Borders Express at M- Mays Landing, New Jersey, on April 18th, between 5 and 8 in the evening. It's on Black Horse Pike in Mays Landing, which is just a few miles north of Atlantic City. Okay. Well, if you get any, any
0: invites from shows called like UFO Global Focus or I to the Sky, those are actually shows on our network
1: now. Well, I'm always happy. And
0: they're, uh, they, they, uh-huh. they're good. They're not as good a host as Watch—they're gonna be on me now. But anyway, Charles, I want to tell you things again, man. You're always a great guest, and you did a fantastic job. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in the near future. Uh, Any tour dates? I mean, you're gonna be out. um, I'm sure they'll be getting you out on the tour with the new book. So,
1: well, um, uh, you know, the 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 one on April 18th is the only one I have scheduled. Um, You know, um, we there there is the CD-ROM. Fast Walkers, which um, in which I'm here, and and um, um, of course my wife always tells me to say things. And I'm not quite sure I heard her, but thank you so much. Oh, set Fast Walkers is a DVD.
0: Yeah, I, I have a copy of it. I yeah, um, um uh, I had uh, was it was a James uh, Mr. Mills on the show. I made him send me a copy.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, you know how I am. Uh-huh. I, look, I I am a media dog. If I can get it for freebie, I'm getting it. Because. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I wanted to see because there were several people, including yourself, that wanted the CD that I wanted to see, and, and some mm-hmm. of them were talking about subject matter that they would not really talk about. And mm-hmm. it's something I've been discussing with Linda and some of the icon members in the near future. Uh, we're thinking about next time we're all out touring or all out, you know, hitting the conference mm-hmm. We might put a CD together where where it, has, it doesn't have anything to do with UFOs, but it will have to do with abductions and and contact cases like yours and other contact cases mm-hmm. like this again let me tell you thanks because i know we're running into kevin smith time now but okay. uh, thanks again charles for being on the night like i said i hope to see you soon uh, i know Lynn will have you back on the show probably before a year we try to get y'all on at least a couple times a year <laughs> oh and, thank um, you so much well we do i mean you know because th- the good cases we like to get on there so people can hear them and go over and run. And as you can tell the ones asking you questions have definitely read your books <laughs> that's another thing i like about this audience they're actually educated on this subject but anyway thanks again and i appreciate you coming on and ladies and gentlemen I hope everybody enjoyed the show tonight. I hope you all have a great evening, great morning, great afternoon, wherever you are on our beautiful blue planet. And until next week, enjoy your life. See you then. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Charles. It was an outstanding energy.